Hey guys, hey everybody, welcome back to the uh, another episode of the Vitality Code podcast. I'm here with my co-host and as always well-bearded uh, brother, Dr. Jeffrey Farah. I'm Dr. Jason Farah. Jeff, how's it going? It's going well, my man. It's going well. Good morning to you. How are things in the tally town? Tally's good. Yeah, I um, a little early for me this morning, but you know, we're here. Bright and early. Yeah, uh, <sighs> I got... They got three kids all on different schedules, which means I get the brunt of all their schedules. At least you have you are not well, I'm I don't know if you've ever been, but you're not the current victim of a Facebook ad hack. Yeah, I heard about this. Dude, that was I woke up yesterday morning to mm, all kinds of chaos from the bank, from the <laughs> credit cards, from wow. Who, that was, who caught it? The bank? Well, I it, in a, in a in a fashion in a sort in a in a way of saying sort of but not fully it was the ad agency that did um and notified us and I then, notified you well that was nice of them. It, yeah <laughs> well they got hacked and thereby we got hacked secondarily gotcha. i did get um, hacked this weekend but they only spent 200 dollars at a online gambling so and the bank you got it, it. You, this so you within the last 48 hours you got hacked mm, that's probably monday or tuesday Oh, so this wow! What I mean, the hacking, hacking is it all? I think it's high, just I it's just common, yeah. That's the world we live in. Right? Sonovus, man, my bank's on it. I get this is probably the fourth time they catch. It's never been big amounts, but they always catch it. You know the worst part. Well, I mean, it's way it's terrible. When we, I mean, this was a lot of money, a lot, um, like thousands and thousands of dollars. But <clears throat> so that was lovely. But um, but then. There's that. Then there's the aftermath, right? It's the aftermath that's worse. It's oh, so we went to the went to the grocery store. <laughs> we have been on the phone all. I mean, all, it was exhausting, and we're till only you know from I don't know six in the morning till two p.m. at night. Look at this. J.P. Morgan says attempts by hackers are on the rise, and wow, fifteen billion. Probably to my gosh. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's also you know it's such a big deal that it's a well it has been for. a some years the last few years at least to my knowledge an investing trend too but anyways um yes yeah, so we went so we were you know i don't know we're on the we, you know, gosh i don't know six in the morning till two in the afternoon and then forgot to get back with the bank and they kind of said they were going to do one thing and we went to the grocery store to get some groceries I had no money Boop. my card didn't work oh yeah she said that my let's try your card Boop. it didn't work oh uh, thankfully we had a little you know we had we always keep cash and so cash is king right but it was like wow this is inconvenient now we're heading to a weekend banks are closed so we won't be using these cards all weekend try to use my cash app card everything's connected to you know it's just everything it's just is a pain in the butt i try to use my cash app card for most around i only keep a small amount on that and then i use that for all my day-to-day -day purchases yeah that's what i, I was too. getting hacked from a gas station a while a couple years back i think that was the we narrowed it down to the most likely suspect, but you know, so for oh, now on, geez. I keep a, I, I do cash app for like all my little purchases around town. Gosh. So that's, that's the um, public service announcement of the PSA. <laughs> <laughs> um, who you got in the Super Bowl, man? To be honest with you, I don't care. Uh, pro football is dead to me. You're I, dead uh, to me, pro football. <laughs> I like to watch the old Netflix series of like Barry Sanders. Uh, that's my pro football consumption. Dude, I the love glory old days. school, right? Yeah. Did you watch that series? I think it was Netflix or maybe it was Amazon. No, Prime. I, I would love to watch the one on Barry Sanders. That's, that's a, good. 
interesting thing. I would want to. Yeah. I want to know more about why he stopped. Kind of in his mm. prime. His yeah, you dropping. won't. You won't get any answers. <laughs> well, then I'm not going to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, just interesting. To, there was a, a a real strong undercurrent of the relationship between him and his dad. Uh, watching that, and that heavily mm. influenced his his career. The way he played football, the way he exited, the way he mm. just lived mm. life. Um, Wait, I thought I wouldn't get any information on the way he exited. Yeah, you, there's no crescendo of like, oh, oh. answer, you know. You <laughs> have to sort of infer your own. And I, I So for the Super Bowl and Nick and Jeff, I, I am going to pick the Chiefs just based on talent, momentum. I, I love McCaffrey over on the 49ers. Um, that dude is a beast. Um, I, but I will say I'm looking forward most to Super Bowl being over. And I, and I don't know. I don't want to think I'm jealous. Maybe I am, but I am so sick of Travis Kelsey and <laughs> and 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 T Swift. Oh my God! And I'm I'm sorry. There, I don't mean that personally. <laughs> I doubt there's ever a chance, zero chance they'll ever be listening to this podcast. I don't I don't uh, begrudge them their fame and wealth at all. But I'm just it's like oh my gosh, Blech. I'm just so sick of. And then Being you know what? Fed. Yes, yes, yes. And then, and then, like, dude, last I couldn't believe it. You know, I I seen on social media, even around town, people we know getting into the ah oh, T Swift's boyfriend and T Swift and Swifty mania with as it relates to the Kansas City Chiefs and you better tread stuff. lightly, boy. Come over to my house. Well, okay, I was gonna. So that's where I'm going with this. Is so well, I, I didn't. Walk, I, well, hold on, hold I on, let me, hold on, let me, don't steal my thunder. I, oh, I got to tell you, so I walked in the kitchen yesterday, we're opening up mail, and I'm like, what'd you get, what's this? It was a custom-made shirt, and I was like, oh, it was like an Etu Brute moment. I was like, I just, I was like, you too, Morgan? I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, and I didn't, because she didn't really talk about it, and she, dude, she had the shirt, the custom-made shirt, like, something about, I don't, I didn't even look, something about my T-Swift and the boyfriend and there's a shirt celebrating their relationship. And I'm like, <gasps> I had to like, I was like, oh my gosh, now it's officially, I can't, I can't get away from it. Tell no, me. I'm, tell I'm me so disconnected from pro football. I didn't know who Travis Kelsey was until my middle daughter told me. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is an cool. ex-collegiate football player too, folks. I, I could, I am so out of the, the, <laughs> The media pop culture. I was like, "Hold on, isn't he a Super Bowl champion?" She's like, "No, he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend." And I was like, "What's his name?" And well, like, he is an ex-champion, but yeah. yeah, I had to, I had to kind of dig deep into my peripheral knowledge there. But... <laughs> he's got a couple, Nick. He's got a couple rings, right? I just know him as the Pfizer rep. That's all I know him as. But the double, the double Band-Aid guy. The double Band-Aid. Not give just me, one. You got to get them both, baby. Give me my ten boosters. Hey, do you? I mean, do you think he got an extra bonus for the extra band aid? Like, all right, if I'm wearing an extra <laughs> band aid, I, I bet he that. made more off of that Pfizer campaign than he did a year of football. <laughs> he might have. That's very Pfizer cool. don't Pfizer don't play around, man. You're talking billions and billions of dollars. They're just probably deep. they're probably dolling out ten million like nothing. Like it's nothing. Deep pockets, baby. Yeah. All right. Well, we um we had a, we each had a little bit of time off. We did. We kind of. I don't know, man. Uh, we saw other people, <laughs> <laughs> but we just—I couldn't quit you, Jeff. I just couldn't quit you. you came uh, back. We're, we're back, baby. Um, so I think you had some. You know, we we constantly 
barrage each other on IG. I never right. have to worry about my wife being worried about what's in my DMs. It's, it's always, just me. It's just <laughs> Jeff. Bing, bing, bing. It's sad, it's though. Like, uh, talking, yeah. about, talking about, uh, you know, media and pop culture, my, all my DMs, I'd only use social media for I follow some medical people and I follow comedians. That's all I want. I was going to say, now, hold on. You just said, oh, I'm not into pop culture. But Those are my two but, categories. But, I, dude, you're an IG junkie. I want comedians and I want medical. That's it. I have nobody else. You do you do send me some funny stuff. I will say that. I want the Netflix. I want the comedians. I got the you know individual comedians. I don't follow anybody else. I don't follow Rogan. I don't follow any of the of those traditional outlets. I just want comedy and medical. And so, so, you, I, so I that's a you. good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I like it. And so, um, uh, that's a good segue. I think we were recently talking about. <laughs> We love to look at these other sites and look at this, look at this knucklehead or look at the, what do you think about this? Or sometimes it's a joke. Sometimes it's a real question. I, we had some interesting thought provoking questions come up in a, your recent perusal of some of the hormone IG pages or people that are in the same space as us and working and having, bringing up some issues. It was interesting to see people's responses um, physicians' responses, right? I think you. Yeah, yeah, I would just, you know, sometimes you, I live in, or we all probably do, but I feel like sometimes I don't know how much. Chamber. Of, yeah, how much of my world is reality and how much of my world is being shaped by the influences that start feeding me. Once you look at one hormone doctor's webpage, then it seems as if female BHRT is exploding at the moment. And I don't know if that's because. They are pushing all that content towards me, which is another reason I try not to consume too much of it because I feel like it, it shapes the world. It may make the world seem as different, not the same as it really is. But um, And so I've started following a couple, I, I, I think, prominent BHRT uh, people on Instagram that provide actual good content. And so I thought it was um, interesting to go read some of their questions and comments. They seem to have more engaged users. It's not the typical... YouTube um, X where it's trolls and people yelling at people. And I don't know if that's a female versus male thing or whatever, but these pages are dominated by female um, subscribers. And so they, in my opinion, they were asking what seemed to be legitimate questions and, and the comments and responses were seemed to be genuine um, asks for knowledge. And so I thought it'd be interesting to go through some of those and find some of the more common themes that were repeated by their users. The, um, it was two doctors. One was Dr. Louise Newsom. She's from the UK and hers is the menopause doctor. And then um, Dr. Mary Claire, um, who is uh, US based. And I think between the two of them, they had, I want to, I don't know, they had maybe a, a, a million users or subscribers. Um, Were they so, talking to each other or what was No, it? no, no. These are just two separate oh, doctors, oh, okay. um, both OBGYNs, one in the UK gives a lot of information tilted from the UK. So there's a lot of the, uh, I guess it's the, the NHS over there, their, their national health system uh, and some of the issues dealing with that. And then Dr. Mary Claire here in the States, but both of them are BHA, BHRT providers. And then the women in their comment section, it's very interesting to see their, their questions. And so I, I wrote down a few of the most common themes over and over and over that seem to be getting asked by the users. So I was going to ask you, those questions and see if we could sort of elucidate the answers that are maybe 
by this two-person Instagram poll. <laughs> the, more, the more prominent questions are posed by females. Um, so the first one I saw was, where did my doctor get the information that I was only allowed to do HRT or hormone replacement therapy for five years? Is this true or not? Question mark. Yeah. So where did that come from? Well, as best I know, so there was that famous uh, world initiative study that's been highly criticized for good reason with methodologic flaws and then later subgroup analysis and deeper nested analysis and going back through. And or could it be that that was um, poorly interpreted and it was made to be something it was never intended to be? Well, that's true. And, And a lot of literature is like that. Like, yeah. you know, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. Peter so, Atia had a lot had of people good, don't know what they're talking about. All, all yeah, Peter times. Atia had a good podcast with one of the lead authors of that, and it was like, oh, you guys never intended it to be what it is, and it, it was just sort of yeah. taken over by the proverbial media that jumped on it and, and made it seem something that it wasn't, and it got really stuck in the literature. But nonetheless, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, well, I, well, I, yeah, probably wasn't really intended to be that, but but you nonetheless – if you have conclusions, people are going to look at these results and conclusions, and then they they may go on to make decisions that, in other words, we we want to look at the role of different hormones, and we want to look at the role of hormone replacement therapy in women's health, for instance. But and then, if, but no matter what, you're going to come to a set of conclusions and results, and then people are going to interpret those results and perhaps take actionable. Or you know, make actionable recommendations based on those, and it may not have been their intention to vilify anything. It may not have been a bias. It may not have been even their intention to look at that one thing in that one setting. But I mean, you have to. That's it. That's <clears throat> I'm going to drop a bomb somewhere. I know it's going to explode and have collateral damage. I mean, you got to know. Um, but it it just gets to the point of where you have to be responsibly interpreting the literature. You have to be responsibly processing literature. You as a consumer. Now that in this digital age where everything is more available, widely available, unfortunately you either have to, <laughs> I mean, you just need to know what you don't know as best you can. Sometimes it's hard to know, to know what you don't know, you know, the bias or the base case is that you don't know what you don't know, but, um, but it, it learning to evaluate statistics and things is at least in a rudimentary way is useful if you're going to be referring to those and making decisions based on those. But anyways, that study and the million women study, all of a sudden, HRT in, you know, as treatment for menopausal symptoms and hormone deficiency of aging or whatever, you know, whatever the scenario is, oh, risk of breast cancer, we're not going to do that. Fast forward, women are suffering, you know, secondary menopausal symptoms of neuromotor decline, cognitive decline. Uh, osteoporosis, urogenital deficiencies, urinary tract deficiency, urinary infections, lower urinary tract symptoms, cardiovascular effects. And this has been the big criticism of those conclusions, right? Is that you had this multi-decade group of women that went on to suffer from the removal of the, that important therapy from their lives. And now people are going back and look. And then, so that, as best I know, that comes from ACOG, the American College of Gynecologics and Obstetrics and Gynecology that now saying, okay, five years, that's the official recommendation, five years postmenopausal, you can do that. That is based on other literature and other studies, like there's NCCN guidelines, NIH guidelines, that you can use those even in certain disease states like BRCA and things. Um, 
and I don't, there's an arbitrary number, you know, of like up to age 52 and, or, or short term rather short term. So if you're getting your <clears throat> ovaries removed at, you know, uh, 45, you can use it for until you're 52. That's seven years. So that's roughly, but the official reason I know what I know of the five years is that's an official recommendation from ACOG. But to me, again, that same recommendation and the literature it's based on is still under further review and we don't have <clears throat> high quality, you know, multi-center, randomized, prospective, placebo-controlled, double-blind studies to that are practice changing, that produce practice changing data that we can rely on. We have massive amounts of cohort studies, massive amount of retrospective studies, all these are things that are lower grade data. But until we have massive quantities of very high grade data as practice changing data, and hopefully that is ongoing, that, you know, you have to take this with a grain of salt. But that's, as far as I know, that's where that comes from is the official recommendations from ACOG. I was a very, uh, <laughs> you should go into politics. That was, <laughs> that was your long, I gotta get, I gotta get like... my, right? Is that the thing? <laughs> I did not see oh, that's that right. one. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was good. Um, yeah, I think that's where most docs, <clears throat> especially if you're not a specialist in that area or you're right. a primary care, you, you, how do you synthesize millions and millions of data points? And you have to rely on things like the ACOG. And, and you're like, well, I'm not a gynecologist. I'm not an obstetrics. I'm a primary care. And the, the, uh, the specialists in that, that area who have had dedicated their life to the research and understanding of it tell me this. So that's why I say this. So um, you have to realize why people practice the way they do. Not you personally, but I mean, well, we both, all of us do, but the public. So <clears throat> there is one thing, okay, and you probably noticed this as you went through your training, various, various levels of training. I know I did. There was, and I didn't realize it until I got challenged. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because uh, uh, I, I train at Wake Forest, and that's what they said there, and that's what the book says, and that's... I don't know, because that's what they, I don't know. That's what, so there's the bias of you, you I, that's, that's, that was the Wake Forest way, or that was the Duke way, or that was the whatever way, you know, that was the Palmer way. Or <clears throat> okay, so that's one. Then there's um, whatever the current literature was when you were taught, and, 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 and if it's book knowledge, not journal articles and you know, peer-reviewed uh, journals, that's five, ten years old. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So 10 years old then. So, so that's another reason. Then I, I never will ever forget this. Um, I, uh, this, uh, you know, you've heard of Z dog MD. Yeah. Okay. So I, he has a podcast and he has other things besides those music videos, you know, through the years. And he's pretty big now at this point, but I remember him having this discussion about his dad who was a physician and telling him how to practice. And he's like, you know, son, when you go to medicine, you need to be risk averse, be totally risk averse. You know, and, and this is how you're going to become a CEO, be totally risk averse, just do what's in the protocols. Just do, But there is something to that. We all have to be concerned. We all have to buy medical malpractice insurance, right? And so there's the common denominator and the common medical legal umbrella and coverage, which if you operate under, you're safe and you're practicing safe. So um, one of the key things about general surgery, I don't know about other surgical specialties, but you know, when you go to take your boards is <clears throat> we're trying to produce safe surgeons. Now in surgery is a little bit different because you can really mess somebody up because it's an invasive endeavor. Well, you can mess somebody up with medicines too, but I mean, any kind of medicine, but uh, so 
So if you're out there, like you said, and you're not a specialist, you're not at the cutting edge of research, you're in a busy practice, you're 10, 10, 15 years removed from training, you may not even be on the most cutting edge of your knowledge base, which it's always a tough thing to do. I don't, I don't look down on anybody for that because it's, it's a constantly evolution. It's hard to keep up with the human knowledge base is doubling every, I don't know, every few months now at this point, I read some statistics, it's ridiculous. Then you just, you do what you know and what is safe and what you're comfortable with. And, and then, so if you are out there in the world practicing, you have medical legal coverage from institutional protocols, from research or society guidelines. So if you're an OBGYN prescribing these drugs and the American College of Gynecology and, uh, Gynecology and Obstetrics says five years is okay, you have a legal base case of an expert panel, a governing body to protect you and the supposed medical legal risk to you when you prescribe those hormones to a woman who may go on to develop a cancer and sue you, even though that probably is not the cause of it, but you know, because of the, the studies of 2002 and the million women study and different things, somebody may try to sue you, right? So, so these are the reasons, these are some of the reasons we don't always practice medicine based on what seems like straightforward methods. There's these things like, you know, trying to make sure you're not, you're medically covered and you, you, you may be just doing what somebody taught you or outdated literature from textbooks. Do you know what I'm saying? And 100%, so, yeah, medicine yeah, doesn't so I, necessarily, doesn't necessarily um, promote uh, innovation from a practitioner right, standpoint. Right. It's very, right. I, I found this to be true um, very quickly is it is really disconcerting to a physician to be practicing on the fringes of medicine, which is on the backside is good. You don't want to be doing all these negative things, but it also stifles innovation. It also stifles. It's massively stifles innovation and there's, because and there's a storied history of that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think for me, I having been a chiropractor first, like I was thrust into that realm of not being accepted by mainstream right out of the gate. And I had to be comfortable with my knowledge base and I had to be comfortable with the way I practiced because I was being told constantly. I remember, you know, when I first moved to Tallahassee, the way I started my practice was I pulled up the, believe it or not, yellow pages at that time. Um, <laughs> I still remember I had a yellow pages. I had a yellow Dang, pages son. rep. I had a Dang, yellow pages a rep, rep. A rep. It was by. a rep. Oh man, yep. you old son, you old. So, wow. and I just went to every physician I could and I called them and I asked to come to their office God. and bring them lunch and talk to them. And I actually wow. made that food and oftentimes myself in my own kitchen, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I just couldn't afford to cater it. But, and I remember getting cussed out by, by physicians like, what the hell is a chiropractor doing here? You guys are assholes. I can't stand you. Let you in my office. Da, 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 da. And some opened me with, you know, with welcome me with open arms and some. So, but I say that is I had to be comfortable with what I was doing and I couldn't crumble from that or else I, I, I wouldn't have made it. And, and then it wouldn't have, if I had, if I had believed what they said and I wasn't sure of what I was doing, then I would have been like, yeah, why am I doing this? This is stupid. This is fake. This is hurting people. But I was like, no, this is not what's happening. I am comfortable with the research. I am comfortable with my experience. I am comfortable with what I'm doing. And so I got used to practicing a little bit on the fringes of, mm -hmm. of medicine, so to speak. And so, but it is not um, promoted by medicine. All you learn algorithms and even in chiropractic, it was really frustrating to me to practice when this old dogmatic way, because that's the way everybody else practiced. That's the way it had the big research base behind it, but it was obvious to me a lot of those weren't 
productive and weren't beneficial to the patient. And so I chose to practice outside those bounds very quickly. Um, but it was not something that was even at school, which I would think should have been the area where it's safe to explore some of that. It was not promoted at all. And so that's, that, that's, that's quite true. Even, yeah. as, even in the chiropractic school, chiropractic school. Yeah. I remember challenging many a professor and, and I sort of garnered a, the perception of being a, um, you know, cantankerous, if you will, student who would just challenge. But there's a lot of dogmatic uh, information, I felt like. And I was like, well, that's always dogmatic. Yeah. That, and so, but nonetheless, yeah. So I think there is that. But you are cantankerous a little bit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were right, but. <laughs> that's just, no, but you're right. <laughs> shut up. You're like, shut up. <laughs> uh, but no, but you're right. And, and like, I, I, for me, I think of the um, one of the most commonly perceived. Uh, perform procedures in all of general surgery for any general surgeon, let's say for instance, and is a laparoscopic cholecystectomy taken out of gallbladder with little. Oh, right? Is it really? Oh yeah. Yeah. I got a yeah. funny story about that. Tell me. <laughs> so I was a nurse when I was doing my surgical or I, I don't know what rotation I was on, but I was in the, I was in the surgery. Were you uh, in the OR? OR, but I wasn't, I was in the, that morning, like everyone was getting prepped. I think I was doing the IVs. That's what I was doing. I was doing the IV okay. starts for, you know, anesthesia, you know, start for probably, anesthesia yeah. and all that. Yeah. So the, the board, they had a whiteboard at the yes. hospital. The and so, board, and, yeah. I, yeah, an older nurse walks in. It was a guy older. I don't know. He was older than me. So he was older, but um, had been there for a while. And he's like, ah, Dr. So-and-so is here. Look, we got a bunch of gallbladders. What did he do? Stub his toe, take his gallbladder out. Oh, he probably, uh, he's probably got a bad back to take his gallbladder out. Oh, yeah. what did he get? The sniffles, you're taking his gallbladder out. And I remember being like, what are you talking about? And they're like, ah, oh, this guy yeah. takes all everybody's gallbladder out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, there, there might be some of that. I always got to take the moral high ground as an acute care surgeon. Um, or get to, you know, as a acute care surgeon, because, you know, we get the nasty, nasty gallbladders. Uh, yeah. But, um, but, um, but there probably is a lot of gallbladders, you know, taken out. Who knows if you if you're always it's an absolute need and everything. But you know, well, and then it's not I'll always just you, some malicious thing by some doctor. It's how he views the the world and how he views the systems. And if you're having that, that's probably related to your your gallbladder, right? He's not necessarily practicing out of some malicious intent. No, that's absolutely true. And what's what's even more true is. The guy that was saying that it's the called the courage of the non-combatant. So yeah. easy to criticize, right? When you're, in the, when you're not the guy in the stadium, that famous quote, <clears throat> but the courage of the non-combatant. And it was one of the things that is, was the most absolute that you, it's unreal. The understanding the educational disconnect between the surgical techs and nurses and the surgeons on the indications for surgery and why they're doing them. And they, they perceive that they're just doing, and there, and, and there, you know, there may be some of that from time to time go, I, I, you know, that's possible, right? I'm not saying that every surgeon is beyond reproach, but, <clears throat> but what I found, it was so frustrating and then trying to convince people when you go to post-surgery and you're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's just gotten, it got extreme after COVID too. I would have people like bleeding from their neck and their mouth and, or from a tracheostomy site from their airway and obstructing their airway. And try to like, and he's like, can't you just wait till morning? And I'm like, dude, this guy is uh, hemoglobin of six. He's hypotensive and his airway is being obstructed by the blood that's into, you know, some guy operated on him. I was covering that night. Some, someone else had operated on him. I mean, like, what do you, what do I have to do to get somebody on the OR schedule? It's crazy, you know, in the middle of the night, yeah. <clears throat> but, but 
but that same thing is, oh, you're just doing the gallbladder just because you can't. And there maybe there is, but but yeah, there's a poor understanding, and and also there's not malicious intent. But we digress. But um, and that was true. I remember that in chiropractic when I switched over to nurse practitioner. There's this very much this mindset amongst chiropractors that medication is heavily overprescribed, is uh, a, a poor way to practice by prescribing everybody medication. That everybody's overmedicated. Medication kills everybody. And regardless of whatever grains of truth there are to that. I never felt as a chiropractor that I had that, that, that podium to stand on because I didn't understand those patients and I didn't understand the medications. Right. So how could I even talk about it? And that was one of the reasons I went. And I remember talking to some of my chiropractor buddies like, oh, you're going to the other side. You're going to the dark side. I'm like, so if you really want to get people off medication and you really think it's that terrible, why haven't you taken the time to go learn about the medications and go to pharmacology <laughs> and learn the pharmacology? I, exactly. I have, of the two of us, I'll be the only one poised to actually take the person off the medication. Or I became to understand that as a chiropractor, I had the luxury of treating a subset of patients that were not right. infirmed enough to even I got, you know, I had a higher educated patient base. I had a better insured patient base. I had a less sick patient base, less than acutely I, ill, less yeah. acutely ill as a chiropractor than I did when I became a nurse practitioner. And so I was like, oh, it's a very you, not to mention they're doing the very thing that they that you experience and they probably don't like uh, in in reverse. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when a hundred percent, and they were they were saying, and like wait a second, hold on, you guys don't even understand soft tissues and manipulation yeah. of I, mean, I had a neurosurgeon one time and I, we had a dinner it was hosted by this neurosurgeon and he got a little tipsy and he was like ah oh, you chiropractors every chiropractic patient i see you guys don't do any good for anybody and i was like oh that's interesting because i said the same about neurosurgeons <laughs> because we were we were we had selection bias right if you did terrible right. with a neurosurgeon you came you to, went the to the chiropractor yeah. if you did bad with the chiropractor you went to the neurosurgeon yeah. but if you did great with a neurosurgeon you never came to my office because you did good already and if you did great with a chiropractor you never went to the neurosurgeon exactly. so all we knew of each other was how bad we each person was selection and i remember bias. thinking like Absolutely oh huge. yeah and, and, and that moment was quite clear to me because as chiropractors we were always like oh neurosurgeons duh, 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 duh. and i was like maybe we're just seeing the ones who don't do good and maybe there's and maybe that's a small percentage i don't even know maybe it's a big percentage but they're only coming to us if they do bad all the ones that do great never come back because they did great and they don't need us it reminds me of the book factfulness which is a fantastic book and um looking you know the, you're going to get the most clicks views hits whatever for negative stuff right and you're going to say or the one crazy event uh, you know uh, the police, and I'm not saying there's a lot of issues with police violence. I'm not saying that, but <clears throat> it, it's just, it, or, or maybe that was probably a bad one to select being you know, such a polarizing thing. But, but I mean, when you highlight one incidence, it's complete selection bias. You have to view it against the whole, like, uh, you know, everybody's sure. destitute and in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. But actually, if you look at the world population, more people have been lifted out of poverty in the last however many decades than ever, you know, like, you know, global or globally as a, as a society, we're way off better off than we were hundreds or thousands or whatever years ago, you know, on, on, on. So selection bias looms large, but the, but the point of that story was that that was chided and derided as, Oh, you're going to do it. Boy, you're going to go in there with a, with a camera and take it. Seriously. I mean, like before we were just getting these big wax, you know, uh, well, uh, yeah, over here on the right cost of margin, opening hernias, all the bad stuff. And you could do, I mean, that guy that invented the, the, the procedure again, innovation against the institutional crush of, of uh, scientific dogma, right? 
I mean, wow, kudos to those people that I could actually stand up to that and push push ahead and and were better for it. The same thing happened in my career, in my lifetime career and experience with robotic surgery for me. And um, it was funny, you know, oh, this is bullshit uh, for an acute care surgeon, blah, blah, blah. And then my partner, who was the head of the, the program, yeah, I think uh, you're doing pretty good with that robotic surgery. I think I'll learn. I'm like, we were just before you were just saying, uh, and so, it, you know, it's interesting. But so I, you know, so I think that's why uh, whoever has that question or whoever had that question, it's a, <clears throat> it's from a governing body and it's, it's a way to hedge. Um, we're going to say for five years and we're going to, and then those who say that are only following their, only following their society guidelines and, you know. Right. And that's not a bad thing. It just is a thing. It's not good or bad. It just is. And I don't know that. Well, I, I mean, I think you have to good or bad in the context of what? So, so the, it may be bad because, to, no, because listen, because I think as a, it depends on the patient is how I view it. If the patient prefers institutional information, safe, slow, I'm not an innovative patient. I don't want to live my life with a practitioner who's practicing on the fringe. I'd, I'd rather you wait and be a late adopter. That's their choice. And I think so that's what I mean. It's not good or bad. It just is. It is, but here, but with everything in life, and I see this all time in medicine. I talk to residents about this, other practitioners about this. Is people, for, to me, I like to take that sentence and all those sentences to the point where there's a comma instead of a period. You, you and we just, and it, it wasn't like your intention, but if you put a period after that, you're, you're categorically right. And I agree with that. But there's, to me, there's actually a comma. I want to be a patient that doesn't want to be on the fringe, wants a comma, and I don't mind losing out on the benefits because I, I fear the risk too much. You know, I don't feel like, right, you know, so yeah. that's what I mean by bad is, is that maybe there's the benefits that they're losing and the things they could be experiencing as long as they're finishing that sentence and they're rec and they're, and they're right. in there. That's just me. I mean, I, that, that's how I view it because I just think people should avail themselves of, all the options and, and the complete picture to then make the decision. Correct. Um, so I always like to put a comma there and then continue out. Um, you know, um, but yeah, that's okay. where that comes so, from. You got another one. So the, um, the five years from HRT, we're going to say, uh, I agree. That's comes from the ACOG and that's a, a, a widely held understanding of hormone replacement for females. Um, so the next one I saw is, so estrogen seemed to be the biggest discussion of, of the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So this one was, uh, is there a case for women to take estrogen even during perimenopause when they are still making estrogen? And the, the follow-up to that and the same question was, my doctor told me I couldn't take estrogen because my body was still making it. I, so I therefore That's interesting. I, 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 <clears throat> I don't know about society guidelines. I'd have to... No, I don't think there are already official ones. But on this that. is a that's an interesting one because I have seen this in the clinic recently. I would say <clears throat> that it is in doing this for a lot of years and really trying. I mean, I'm not trying to toot our collective horns, but <clears throat> we this podcast is really just simply an extension of an ongoing discussion that you and I have had for. Jeez, man, we could literally say decades at this point. We're getting that old, right? Ever since we both got into medicine, let's say of any type, we we've constantly had these discussions. Like just the, by the nature, just who I don't know, or, or whoever we are, our genetic makeup and our interest, right? So I, I think that that is an extension of that, and I would say it is completely naive to think that you wouldn't do that just because you have estrogen in your body. It to me, it's like saying to a man, 
you don't need testosterone, TRT. It's a good analogy. Right? Yeah. Just You got testosterone, but why do you need it? So you have to say because because then you it's like you're it's like this <clears throat> why do we why do we care about or even have normal ranges then why don't we just have a plus or a minus on the on the lab sheet why do we have numbers why don't we if, if that's how it is why don't we just have a plus or minus yes plus you got estrogen in your body minus you don't i mean why why even calculate numbers if that's if that if by that same logic right so to when i'm where i'm going with this is do you have enough estrogen considering your volume of distribution, your genetic makeup, your end, uh, yada, yada, yada. I mean, do like a, a de depressed person, you've got some serotonin in your brain, so you don't need antidepressants. Well, apparently I don't have enough serotonin, right? So estrogen, do I have enough estrogen to avoid vaginal dryness, to avoid v vulvar vaginal um, uh, atrophy, do um, uh, <clears throat> painful intercourse, um, thinning of the vagina, um, bone health, um, you know, um, cognitive decline, lower urinary tract symptoms, um, life expectancy, Parkinson, you know, so there's a certain effect. That's why we have, that's why we have effective doses, right? We, that's why we talk about titration, right? Because there's a certain, it's not the, it's not ones and zeros like a computer, it's not yes or no. It's not like pregnant, not pregnant, you know? Uh, so I, to me, that's a massively flawed argument. It's without, it's, it doesn't even have logical basis, let, let alone scientific mm -hmm. basis to me. I, it, that's how I see it. Do you see yeah. it similarly? Or? I, I agree. I'm going to put a little nuance because I teach some doctors estrogen prescribing. And so typically I tell women, or sorry, I tell doctors in certain settings, if they are learning hormone replacement, as a new endeavor for them, I tell them don't don't do estrogen on a cycling woman as a rule of thumb while you're learning, because the treatment. This is my rationale for them. Is and and I have there's been an explosion in, even in if they have symptoms that are that are well, estrogen specific. So here's here's the setting. Let me put the setting in there. Is a lot of times there are uh, I'm teaching more and more medical practitioners who are practicing out of a spa out of a med spa. And so I tell them, Hey, you, the treatment window for estrogen is much smaller than it is for testosterone or progesterone. Because, so you have to get good at prescribing estrogen. It's not as easy as some people say, and it's not as evil as some people say, but it is a little more, in my opinion, more difficult in the prescribing nuance in terms of how to titrate your dose than either testosterone or progesterone. So I say because of that, a good way to start your practice is don't do estrogen if they're still cycling, because you will probably make a mistake on your dose and you can lean into it after you get the ball rolling. And but what I, would that what, now if they were cycling? What would that mistake be? The only reason I say that is because the obvious mistake is somebody being amenopausal and then having, you know, uterine dysfunctional uterine bleeding or some kind of you know breakthrough bleeding or whatever. Basically, having a period when they didn't before. Yeah. What is that? What does the mistake quote unquote look like when they're cycling? How will you know that you made a mistake? Well, I I find that uh, the ovaries when when they're approaching in this peri premenopause stage, they don't just take a slow steady drop, right? It's almost like, hey, I've been having these symptoms of low estrogen, and then the ovaries kick on, and then the estrogen pops up. You know, like you might not have a cycle for a month or it might be late for a few ones or the, the flow might change and all of a sudden it regulates. And it's like, well, what the heck just happened, right? Well, what is also described is that you will lose progesterone prior to losing estrogen. And and that is the 
best I, people love to just say carte blanche estrogen dominance i'm going to prescribe progesterone estrogen dominance I, <clears throat> estrogen dominance is a symptom of perimenopause which lends itself to irritability irregular periods um Oh, maybe breast tenderness and things like that. I don't know that one for sure, but but mostly irregular periods and uh, or kind of um, psychosocial kind of or just kind of dysthymia and things like that as the progesterone leaves and you're left with estrogen dominance. Like, and I've seen these people where they have like virtually no progesterone, no matter what mm-hmm. stage of the cycle, and massive uh, dose or you know endogenous levels of estrogen so i bet you that could be that that could be a mistake so to speak right i mean if you were yes and so i just think that um it i tell patients once or clinicians once you get good at this this is not your out of the gate stick to the patients who are a little bit easier and one of the ways to eliminate because i also practice out of I was still trained primary care. We're taught to be kind of scared of everything. At least I was, and you're you're sort of still. So I was taught to be scared of hormones, and so I tell clinicians this is the way I practiced when I first started. And here's some of the things I've learned. And and if you're not good at this, I'd rather you not come out of here out of this training, so to speak, cavalier, thinking you know everything about hormones, thinking you know everything about the nuance of this, and there's no way I could ever hurt anybody with estrogen. In And I mean that not medically, but subjectively. Like, no one wants to walk out of a hormone replacement pellet implant and you're feeling bloated and breasts are tenderness and you're having a, a heavy flow and extra cycles and all that because the doctor was like, ah, give everyone estrogen, you know? And so I just, I, I tell clinicians, and because I'm doing more and more spa trained clinicians or like I recently trained a clinician and she came out of nursing, went straight to nurse practitioner, went straight from nurse practitioner to, to work and never practiced extensively. And and so, and then she became the medical director of this chain of spas uh, or not spas, but chain of like pop-up clinics. And I was like, I'd go cautiously. Like you don't have a lot of real world experience here. And so one of the ways you can eliminate a lot of mistakes is, is going light on the estrogen. So while I agree, that's not true. You got to understand a little bit more. It's a little more nuanced when someone is in perimenopause to, to prescribe estrogen. It's much easier when they're menopausal. Right. And, I, and so I, th- I think it's um, the way I would answer that question is it's not that you can't. Um, it's that you may not need. Let's let's delve deeper into what your symptoms are specifically. And if you would even benefit from, you know, perhaps testosterone would take care of all of your assuming your testosterone is low, take care of your symptoms, perhaps a trial of it and then seeing what symptoms are left over. And if those symptoms correlate to raising your estrogen and then right and then and then after that going slow so that's and also I think, I think i tell them not to be number don't just look at numbers and not look at your patient oh your estrogen is 27 you need estrogen right like look up and ask the patient are you having estrogen symptoms on the both sides of that coin like, i was about to say also you have estrogen in your body you don't need estrogen you know like, yeah so right. it, are they having symptoms <clears throat> um that estrogen could even help yeah good question so yes, there is a case for women in peri. We'll wrap it up. Uh, peri premenopause to take estrogen. Yes, I think maybe that's a little true. bit more difficult to execute on for the beginner, or even someone seasoned. But um, uh, but yeah, it's not like you can't have it or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. Um, and these are no order. So let's go to a more technical one here. Uh, do you have any recommendations for a forty-six-year-old female with a BRCA2 gene mutation? As it relates to what? 
hormone replacement. I was told not that I could not have hormone replacement. And did they say why they couldn't have it? Because the BRCA2 gene. And what would and the BRCA2 gene and the what risk of breast cancer or something? Or I uh, didn't say. I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to infer yes. That was the. So I think the thing that gets the biggest press is the risk of breast cancer. You know, um, I've seen various uh, statistics. Um, I saw on the NA was either the NCC N NCN or NIH website. Um, NIH, 13% of women in the general population, which I saw lower numbers in elsewhere, but 13% of the women in general population would develop breast cancer in their lifetime. By contrast, 55 to 72% of breast cancer, uh, or 55 to 73% of BRCA1 and 45 to 69% of BRCA2 by 70 to 80 years old. Obviously a massively in, increased risk, mm -hmm. right? So it's probably breast cancer. So, the, so then I was thinking about this question. <clears throat> Um, in all fairness, that was one that you had sent to me before or before we, we aired. I was looking at it, thinking about it, and I was like, well, wait a second. This is, again, it, it, you always got to, what I've noticed is you've got to, you've got to, it's, it's tough. It's tough for patients. It's tough for practitioners, for that matter. But to drill down on that more. So the first thing I think I would want to know is, okay, is estrogen itself a risk for breast cancer? <clears throat> well, recently you have to say, you know, I think if you're back in the year 2004, you'd say, oh, yeah, can't do that in postmenopausal women, blah, blah, blah. But it's not as though they were taking out people's ovaries to, so they would never get breast cancer. So, but nonetheless, okay. Um, and, you know, then those studies got reanalyzed, and, and then, well, maybe it's not that big a deal. And so I would take it an even step further and say, okay, is it a risk? of breast cancer, but is it a risk of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer? So if you have estrogen receptor positive, so you, you can remove the tissue, you can remove the cancer, you can prophylactically remove it, of course. You can remove it, and then you can do, well, you can do neoadjuvant, so chemo, chemo radiation before, that's neoadjuvant, or, so you can have, or you can have surgery and then chemo radiation after, adjuvant. So, so there's ways to get rid of the cancer, right, is to remove the cancer. Then, you, then you're looking at preventing recurrence or getting microscopic cancer cells that are either floating in the body or in the direct bed of the surgical field that you may have missed microscopic. How do we do that? Through chemotherapeutic options and radiation. Okay, so, okay, so the question really is, and then if, if it's estrogen receptor positive, I'm going to kill that cancer or reduce the risk of its recurrence by withdrawing estrogen from the body. But that was only one of several arms. The other arms were um, perhaps other chemotherapeutic agents, depending on the type of cancer and morphology and all kinds of histologic, histopathologic subtypes and analyses, radiation, and of course, of course, you know, the direct removal. So, am I going to? So, the question is more: Am I going to just take that little sliver of reduction, and what and what does that amount to? And then it has to be, in my mind, it has to be an estrogen sensitive tumor. So it needs to be estrogen receptor positivity. So then you got to ask yourself in those patients, what is the risk of, of it affecting estrogen receptor positive tumors? And so if you look, <clears throat> um, there's actually, and again, there's not that to my knowledge, there's not double blind, uh, uh placebo controlled, randomized, massive, multi-institutional prospective studies, but there are, there are pretty decent studies. 
that actually shows a possible protective effect of estrogen only, for instance, in BRCA1. Um, and oh, by the way, uh, sorry, in BRCA, and oh, by the way, a majority of BRCA2 tumors are estrogen receptor positive, 77%, whereas in BRCA1, it's not. So, so the first question is, I apologize, let me back up. The first question is, is it BRCA1 or 2? In BRCA1, they don't really have, they don't have a big uh, predominance, at least, of estrogen receptor positive cancers, as at least as what I could find in the literature, okay? And I'm not a breast surgeon, and I'm not a hemo uh, doctor, but as, but as a general surgeon and a consumer of you know current literature, what I, what I could determine, as best to my knowledge, was the majority of BRCA2 tumors are estrogen receptor positive, about 70, upwards of 77%. There was a Nature article in 2019 elucidating this, but not so in BRCA1. So if I'm BRCA1, I wouldn't worry about it. Then you want to say, in those BRCA2s, does it have, do I have a chance? And it, it depends too, what are you going to do? Are you going to, <clears throat> are you going to get rid of the breast tissue? Is the breast tissue going to there? How are you going to monitor it? What do you, you know, what are you doing? But interestingly, there were some Italian studies demonstrating a 8% risk reduction for every year you were on estrogen only hormone replacement therapy after undergoing risk reducing bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy as a BRCA carrier. So the reason they do that is to, so they remove the ovaries and the fallopian tubes because there's a higher risk of ovarian cancer and fallopian tube cancer in BRCA carriers than compared to the general population. 1.2% women in the general population have a risk in their lifetime of getting ovarian cancer. 39 to 44% of BRCA1 and 11 to 17% for BRCA2 by age 70 to 80. Okay. So that's why they do that. <clears throat> and then you're left with surgical menopause. Interestingly, there's a couple studies that I found that showed risk reduction of developing breast cancer in estrogen only hormone replacement therapy protocols. Of note, if you added progestin to the estrogen, you had an 8% increase in risk. Um, uh, and then there was a subgroup analysis also out of Italy that showed an 18% reduction in breast cancer in estrogen-only therapy, but a 14%, with a, but, but also they called non-statistical increase in breast cancer if you added progestin. So the progesterone is an interesting thing because here you are with these women, and then this gets complex because here you are with these women who have had risk-reducing bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, but have left the uterus. Why? Because the uterus, because taking out the uterus is a lot, adds a greater degree of complexity and possible surgical complications. Down in the pelvis, by the bladder. Well, it's all down in the pelvis, but I mean, there's a higher chance of injury to the bladder, the colon, scar tissue, then the risk of, you know, do you take the cervix, do you not take the cervix, sexual risk, all kinds of things. Women, women might say, I, I just get rid of the uterus, but... <clears throat> If there's a uterus intact, though, there's endometrium. And if there's endometrium, there's risk of uterine cancer. So then you ask yourself, okay, do BRCA mutators, do they have increased risk of endometrial cancer? Because we don't hear that a lot, right? What I could find is that there is a slight increase in risk. For instance, there was a Dutch study that showed, um, like, a, I think it was 3.4% compared to 2%. So... 
you know, in, in BRCA mutators for uterine cancer, they do have a higher chance of getting a serious type of uh, cancer, uh, which doesn't seem to be a, I'm not an expert on uterine cancer, but doesn't seem to be as, as, as lethal or as bad. But the risk is pretty small. But I say that because for the average person, you're going to say, oh my gosh, there's that uterus and I'm giving estradiol. Got to protect that uterus. And you do. I mean, I get that. In general, it's thought that estrogen dominance without protective progesterone will in increase endometrial thickening in perpetuity uh, and to a great degree and thus potentially increase risk of uterine cancer. In general, that is physiologically true and there's a physiologic mechanism for that. But if you give that person, and these specific people, you may not want to be giving them progesterone because maybe you're going to be increasing, there's more studies needed, but maybe you're going to be increasing breast cancer. So I'm a 46-year-old. The first thing I'd have to ask is, are you BRCA1 or BRCA2? I would say, are you going to do risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy so that you would be putting the surgical menopause? I'm assuming so if you're asking the question. And then the other question is, what are you going to do about your breasts? If the breast tissue is not there, then then I would, you know, then I would, my bias after looking at the literature, my opinion, after look, my expert opinion, after looking at the literature, and in that scenario where you're taking the breast out is it's kind of a no-brainer. I, I, I mean, I think the secondary menopausal symptoms should be avoided and you have high risk of Parkinson's, cognitive decline, osteoporosis, all, I mean, massive things, um, the sexual side effects, <clears throat> the hot flashes, on and on, just to, uh, and you're not going to really get a benefit. Uh, and so estradiol only is how I would do it. Of note, there have been you know, guidelines now reported in Europe, at least, perhaps in the United States, that short-term HRT in those patients are okay. Again, short-term. They, and they, and the, what I could find is there was an arbitrary cutoff at age 52. I do not know the exact reason why 52. But um, so... What I would say overall is find out which BRCA you are, because again, if you're not a BRCA, if you're BRCA one, it's to me, there's not even a predominance for estrogen receptor positive breast cancers in those women, as far as I can tell from the literature. So it may obviate the need to carry out that question so far. In BRCA two, <clears throat> as best I can tell in the current literature and these the studies that I were was finding were in ranging from 2018 to 2023, so pretty current, and um, it doesn't look to be an increased risk, interestingly. And, and furthermore, I would also say this. I didn't see in the studies people talking about DIM, you know, and, and, and looking at phase one and phase two metabolism of estrogen in the liver and the production, or in the case of using DIM, blocking the production of the specific type of estrone, <clears throat> hydroxyestrone, that has been implicated as being a promoter of cancer and specifically breast cancer. So yes, estradiol only. Yes, use DIM as added protection. And I don't see where you'd be at increased risk of breast cancer. Um, as best I can tell from the current literature, what say you, my well-bearded <laughs> I think well you did a friend. good job. I think you did a good job elucidating that. I think two things. I've become more... We speak, DIM was the one you said there last. I use it a lot in my male patients. I have used it less and less, or, or, or considerably less in my females, but I have become more and more attuned to the, the potential need for using DIM in my female patients because of that uh, diversion away from the estrone production. Um, I think I was using it more for estrogen blocking, and so I kind of viewed it through that lens uh, in my male patients. 
And so therefore led to less of my recommending it for my female patients. And I've kind of had to reevaluate that and, and, and look more of its applicability for my female patients. I um, like the idea of it being increasing the free testosterone in both sexes too, especially when I had a recent case of a woman who I was able to get her testosterone up to 10 or it was like 110 or something. And she originally came in, had symptoms of low androgen uh, and low testosterone, <clears throat> still was not menopausal. And her, her endogenous estrogen or endogenous testosterone was 15. We got her up to 110 and she said she didn't feel anything. And I was baffled. I'm like, hmm. But it was interesting on second glance at her labs, her SHBG was 166. And I was like, that's oh. huge. And then, yes, yeah, huge. And her free was like, the range in the lab was 0.2 to 2 as being normal. Hers was only 0.6. And when she came in, it was like 0.2. So she had barely moved the needle. I'm like, oh, no wonder you don't. In that person, Dim could raise the free testosterone and be a useful adjunct. Well, in all people, really. But she would highlight that in stark relief to me because I think the reason that she wasn't, quote, unquote, feeling it is we literally didn't move the needle much on her free testosterone. So Yeah. And the Dim will help with that. The other thing I, I wanted to comment was, you know, I think there's been a, there's some internet personality types that are selling sort of genetic testing and finding out if you have the MTFR gene and if you have this and that, and they're trying to sell you supplements and things like that. So I get questions about that. I, I always tell specifically my female patients, yes, there is some, there is some practicality to getting genetic testing. But I like to ha tell them my practical advice and see what you think about this is I, I tell them, let's have some actionable steps in place. Should you get some information that says you have a propensity towards something? Because just having the information and doing nothing over it is just going to be a black cloud hanging over your head. Now Absolutely. you have a, you know, a 50% increased risk in ovarian cancer right. because you're a BRCA2 carrier or, uh, you know, and well, what are you going to do with that information? We need to decide that beforehand because if you're, my opinion is if you're not going to do anything with the information, then what good is the information? And so be cautious with, because I, I've seen some patients who just live in a state of fear. Um, so I tell women like, let's, let's literally discuss the, the reality in your life. If you became a BRCA positive and you learn this information, would you do bilateral vasectomy? Would would you would you do surgery to remove the breast tissue? You know, and that's a very complicated decision. And I think it takes the beginnings of it is best done without necessarily knowing that you have to make the decision right then and there. And you have this black cloud hanging over you, which can then feel like a time a ticking time bomb or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I tell them typically what I would recommend is you we have a. a option for surgery or we have an option for increased monitoring should that information mm -hmm. come back before you get the test maybe with maybe with higher level modalities like maybe you're doing breast mri or yes specifically breast mri, MRI. i had the uh, oncologist tell me you know it's like the mammograms are screening tools and not diagnostic tools uh, for breast Good tissue point, yeah. um mri and if you're BRCA too they wanted every or they were BRCA, you wanted every six month mris mm -hmm. and i was like that's a big investment and you need to know that and you need to yeah. be willing to do it because then otherwise you have this information. So I think part of that for me, the practicality side of it is let's have this discussion. Let's learn more. Let's dive into the literature and it may not be as cut and dry and it may not be something you want to do. That's okay to not know that information as well. So that I, I agree with your information and that would be the two things that I would add to it.
And what you said was it may not be something you want to do. So, so that brings up a whole other issue too is and in cancer therapy and treatment too. I think it's, it's time if you, if people aren't doing it already to normalize personal decision-making in those scenarios, because it's their life. I mean, like you don't need to live your life according to some guideline if that's what you don't want to do. I mean, you, it's, practitioners need to be ethical and you don't need to, you need to avail patients of all the information because that's your job. And it's also the ethical thing to do. And then they make the decision. Like, you know, I had a woman come in recently with a history of breast cancer and was wanting in menopausal and was wanting a hormone replacement therapy. And I was incredibly reluctant to do so. We eventually settled on testosterone only, but because there's no increased risk, but I'm going to tell you, it was tough, and hearing her story was tough because she was she had gone through all this misery, basically, <clears throat> um, of all these estrogen-related symptoms, the hot flashes and the um, vaginal dryness and vulval vaginal atrophy and not feeling like herself and um, didn't feel female, didn't feel desirable. I think she had lost her husband previously, so had never really g- gone back out into the dating world, but wished to have a companion and wished to have a romantic relationship but didn't feel like she could in her hormone depleted state and she felt captive by these adjuvant guidelines she had undergone a mastectomy chemo rads and then was in her post was in her adjuvant monitoring setting living this life where she was just getting day by day and getting along day by day and just going home and drinking, she'd become alcoholic because she had this escape into wine and on and on. It was, it was sad. It was sad. And she, and she really was like, I don't care about, and I was like, well, let's not be careful. Let's, let's, you know, and so I wanted to go stepwise before she went full bore into dual hormone therapy, but let's try the testosterone first, see if that can alleviate a lot of your symptoms. But I was frankly scared. And so I, I think about that. And I juxtapose my medical legal fear. What are other practitioners going to think? What am I, what am my medical legal risk? And I just juxtapose that against her desire to be normal once again, as she sees it, and wanting to have that life back. And it's, it kind of, it kind of, it's tough, right? You know, and that's the human side of medicine and people need to be able to make the decisions for themselves after a thorough consideration of all the data and the risks that they wish to make is my viewpoint. It becomes yep. tough when you as a practitioner feel like you're being pulled along with that in terms of medical legal risk. But, you know, <clears throat> I've heard I've heard OBGYN and other hormone practitioners say they'll, you know, they have to sign a clause that, you know, kind of, and I don't know how this would even hold up in court, but, you know, says that, you know, I've considered this, I know the risks, I, 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 I don't hold responsible the practitioner for anything that could happen. But, you know, I, I find that the risks <clears throat> outweigh or, or, or diminished rather by the benefits. So that's another yep. way to handle it. But what else you got? All right. So let's do some quick uh, rapid fire ones here uh, as we can. Is it possible to start HRT too early? Um, I, I, I think in general, uh, that's interesting. That's a, and so are we talking <laughs> from, a, from a female perspective or male or both? Well, these are female. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I think from a, from a male perspective, you could, right? Because you would you shut down your HPA axis. Um, is it possible? I, 
I suspect it's yeah. I mean, I, what are you gonna? I mean, so that's a tough question, right? Is it possible? Yeah, we're not, gonna There's not enough information in there to really. Right, we're not gonna give a seven-year-old girl or, 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 or a sixteen-year-old girl. Why would you do? I mean, but I mean, <laughs> and I, I, we're not talking about the uh, current trends of medicine towards <laughs> exactly giving prebubescent uh, people who have mush for brains hormones that are going to affect their life forever oh. and, and the, the stupidity of that. I think we're talking more like maybe I, I read this as maybe like a twenty-five or a thirty-year-old woman or, um, and and so yeah, I, I think that it's an individual case by case, case by case basis. Yes. I saw a woman recently in clinic that was in her nurse practitioner too it was in her. Th- 30s i want to say early 30s but maybe mid 30s and um she had menarch so she had her first period and it was kind of normal but then every single period after that was weird weirdly light and irregular and they couldn't figure out what she had symptoms basically of hormone deficiency now there's probably there's probably underlying things and we're investigating that as as she sees fit by the way but her whole life she had been like that and and one of her biggest symptoms was incredible issues with vaginal dryness and dyspareunia or or painful intercourse she had been married and then divorced and you know had premarital relationships marriage divorce and then was in a current relationship and never ever with any single relationship ever had had intercourse that was not painful she said felt like a corn cob and all, da, 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 and all had vaginal dryness and it was very bizarre so her estrogen was incredibly exquisitely low <clears throat> fsh was low too so there's a whole host of things that we're we're thinking about investigating in that but you know i that highlights it's a case-by-case basis Yep. And I think in general, the answer is yes, but what are you talking about specifically? Are you symptomatic? Do you need them? Well, if you need and then them, I guess you uh, you say like, is it possible to start too early? It depends on your risk tolerance too. Like for a male, you got to be you, like, you specifically concerned about fertility and, and what does too early mean and what are the risks? And so it is possible, but it's a case by case basis. Um, what does the term body identical or bioidentical HRT mean? Ah, that's a great one. Um, Quickly. It means the hormone that you're giving to the patient is exactly what is produced by chemical, the chemical structure. Of chemical the structure. Is, yeah. yeah. And Not where the are the, and where are those generally sourced? Wild yams in the case of, um, I think soy too. Do they, soy. Do they yeah. Phyto, soy phytoestrogens. Yeah. In other words, not from horse urine in the case Correct. of progestins <laughs> or like, you know, somebody that, yeah. Um, so yeah, vegetables usually. Vegetables, vegetables, yeah. and or fruit sources. Yeah. What if I'm over sixty years old and I haven't started HRT yet? Is it too late? It's never too late. <laughs> um, I mean, I you know, clearly, if you were depleted from fifty to sixty, and then you start sixty, you miss ten years of benefit. But no, it's not too late. You'll still yeah. you'll still derive benefit from it, and it's worthwhile. Yep. Um, Here's an interesting one. I was told by my GYN to put my estradiol cream on my face. Just take a little bit of it, mix it with my face moisturizer. Is this legit advice? I think. What would your wife say? <laughs> it's interesting. There may be some local effects on the skin that are good. Estrogen is good for your skin. Um, I've seen it in topical hair regimens for hair loss or, you know, making your hair more luxurious. And, and it does. And so there may be a role for that. Mixing it into the cream that's kind of bizarre i would worry about absorption the sec the bigger question is why in the world are you 
rubbing it on your face. If you are using cream as HRT, you're missing the boat. You're, I think it's the worst. Oh, it's one of the yeah. worst forms of HRT ever. I used to say, oh, it's messy. It'll get on people. You have to multiply it multiple times. You have to remember it. Here's the kicker. This is the biggest thing. It doesn't change your serum levels, period. And, I, and I've got multiple case studies of so empiric evidence in my clinic of doing this with women. I have a female bodybuilder that we eventually had to convert to injections, uh, subcutaneous injections. We doubled her dose. She was on creams. She wanted to stay on creams. Didn't want to get a pellet. Was worried about walking on stage with her butt hanging out and, you know, necessarily, but didn't want a little scar and, or even the chance of it. <clears throat> so, okay. We'll say creams. Okay. Double the cream. Triple the cream. Do it twice a day. Three times. Nothing. Okay. Take it right before you come in. Take it 15 minutes before you come in and we'll take your serum test. Never could get her above like 30. And what if you're using the cream for local effect? What if you're using it for? So that's what I'm saying. Depends what you're using it for. If you're using yeah. it for local effect, there may be something to that. Um, I would think so. It makes sense to me in the increase yeah. in collagen locally. The increase. I did a, a presentation. It's been a few years, and so I'm, I'm light on the information. But it was for, but podiatrists and hormone podiatrists. Cream. Yeah. For so feet? it was so for feet. Well, it, it was for podiatrists as well as another i don't think it was maybe it was dermatologists and you in the the role of hormones in in skin basically and i think it was podiatrists and dermatologists um and so specifically the role of estrogen for collagen production um and there's a significant drop in collagen production postmenopausally uh due to the direct effect of estrogen and so yeah. it makes logical sense to me that maybe mm -hmm. uh, and i don't see any theoretical off the top of my head a significant downside to doing it um, i don't unless unless you're gonna effect. yeah you got i would go i would be conservative because you know one thing about topically applied hormone therapy in general is that in again one of the reasons it's problematic is it raises your serum levels very fast and drops them very low so um if it was going to do it there probably is a role for it like you're saying there's been studies about vitamins too topically applied vitamins Oh, interesting. Higher levels in the tissues that they're applied to directly, like the face. But you were just saying you couldn't get serum levels, so you're saying you couldn't get them because they drop so quickly post-absorption? I was saying that, and that's based on other authors and my own personal experience. But if you look at like a, if you look at data from a pharmacology lab that is, mm. you know, has a probe in somebody and is monitoring continuous serum levels, yes, they exactly, they rise so fast and they're destroyed so quick. So cardiac output, five liters a minute, right? So you're going to cycle your, you know, whole, whole uh, blood volume in a minute. You're going to go through the liver. You're going to destroy that because it's whoosh. If it all goes in there that quick. Yeah. Um, I generally tell women with, with who desire creams in my practice, I don't have a problem medically with it. It's, it's tougher. And I'd say you're going to have to work a lot harder. I prefer uh, pellets. I, I feel comfortable with them as a physician. I feel comfortable with them for you as a patient. You'll get good results. It'll be easier. But I have no problem doing creams. But just understand you're going to have to do a lot of the work because there's going to be a lot of titration investigation involved in it. Yeah. And I, and I, I used to say that. Now I say just so long as you know you're not going to really change your serum levels much. And if you're okay with that, I, yeah. I'm, I, just, I think it has a perception amongst, I, and specifically because I just had a woman this week who had a couple of these questions, which was kind of furthered my interest in doing this one. But that was her, she was, she viewed it as, as safer. Right. And I think I, physicians I, I, view that as well. Ask eh, cream, you can stop whenever. It seems to be no. a less, you know, like less involved. and It's not safer. I think it's, if anything, it's, it's the opposite. And we know that, okay, so there was the gel, there was a the testosterone gel, for instance, that 
either got pulled off the market or had a black box warning. And I forget who was the maker. Maybe it was Abby V. Like you had, I think it, it was, was one of the, ju- you know, increased risk of heart attacks. There was, um, there was, uh, and then just, we know, and we've investigated this on, interestingly on this podcast series. <clears throat> it's not necessarily the serum level that's dangerous or has the effect, although that can be the case. What, but what is also the case, and maybe even more so, is the rate of rise. You know, so so testosterone, so a lot of testosterone. So if you have a guy that's a, a has a serum level of thousand on the left hand, and the guy has serum level on a thousand on the right hand, but the guy on the left hand, for instance, did intramuscular injection and had a whopping rise real fast, like you know, he's going to have a higher level estrogen, other side, bad side effects as composed to maybe the bioidentical guy, both have the same serum levels at that point in time, right? They've reached a steady state or whatever, but the guy that rose quickly and then stayed there, he's going to have a lot. So the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics do have huge implications for us on a health level. So it's incredibly important um, to keep that in yeah. mind. I've switched a few guys since we did that talk on um, sub-Q injections versus IM injections for testosterone. I've Love switched, I switched three-ish, maybe four, yeah. and I'm some waiting to see. One of them specifically was having to donate blood quite frequently, yeah. desired to stay on testosterone. He's like, I'm just tired of phlebotomy. I said, all right, well, here's what we're going to try, and we're going to see what actionable steps or what these actionable steps yeah. result in. Um, so yeah, so it's you know changing the way you administer, or maybe he, he might have to go to pellets even. You know. Yeah. So, Next yeah. question: um, Do I have to be on HRT forever? That's a common one I saw. I this one specifically: question. I am worried about the long-term health effects, but I am 42, had a hysterectomy, so therefore I'm already in menopause. So we're we're going to address those two together, right? <laughs> So yeah, I, that was I, a specific I, question, but yeah, the first one, do I have to be on HRT forever? How do you answer that when patients ask you that? I get that question. That's probably one of the most common questions, and and or or maybe sound like this: Can I get off of it if I want to, or that kind of thing? Well, first of all, you can always do what you want to do, right? Whatever. I mean, you know, that's that's obvious. So no one's going to hold you to that. Um, what you I wouldn't really say ask, that's obvious. You ever been to a primary care and you try to come off anything they put you on? <laughs> they make you feel like the worst person ever. I know that's right. So, well, so maybe it isn't obvious and I like to remind and, and is why I like to remind. So good point. And I like to remind people of that it's always your choice. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> I, so I tell patients when, when you say that, and I, I don't mean this in derogatory or anything, but I'm just letting you know my perspective. When you say that, what I hear is I, because I'm biased as somebody who researches this, uses it and helps people get better with it. And I can't help but be biased by it. I have no choice. <clears throat> but when you say that, I hear, if I ever wanted to be less healthy than I am now, and if I didn't want to receive the benefits of hormone therapy, can I stop taking those? Yeah, if you don't want to have the hormone benefits and be less healthy, which also speaks to the question, I'm worried about the long-term effects, but I'm already in menopause. Okay, well, are you also, and again, there's always this comma. Don't put a period there. Put a comma. Always put a comma. <clears throat> comma. Okay, are you worried, comma, about the <clears throat> effects of secondary menopausal symptoms, neurocognitive decline, uh, uh, no, sorry, neuromotor decline, cognitive decline, cardiovascular risk, urogenital deficiency, lower urinary tract, uh, you know, urinary tract infections, uh, osteoporosis, uh, early heart attack, well, that's cardiovascular, you know, on and on and on. Are you worried about those effects? And, oh, okay, that's a little different. And, and if you are, are you more worried about supposed effects than those or which one, you know, so can you, can you get, can, so the first one, 
Can you get off it? Yeah, you can always get off of it. Why would you ever want to? Said another way, more plainly, why would you ever want to? Um, on, the, on the other hand, um, what was the, what was the second question? Um, I'm, but I'm already <laughs> menopause. I'm worried. Oh, is okay. But again, I'm already well, I'm 42 and I'm already right. in menopause. You're already, su- you're already you're already you're so you're suffering. Number one, um, or you're suffering the ill effects that are going to take time to show up, but are beginning now, and. If you are worried about the theoretical risks, are you worried about the risk of hormone deficiency? Because you should be, in my biased but expert opinion. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that's and, the tough one. That's the, probably the most common question I get from patients, male and female. Is, do I have do you, to, do I, have do to go? I tell them flat out no. I say, if you ever decide to come off this, please just tell me. I will help you do it right. properly. Don't cold turkey anything. I you won't. I say my stupid well, yeah. examples. I say the same kind of script. I'm like, if you win the lottery and you move to you know Mexico and you don't want anybody to know it and you just can't have access to a doctor, just call me up, send me a text, and and we'll help you do it slowly. You know, right. um, but don't come off cold turkey because it just there's better ways to do it. Uh, with men, I tell them, well, if you're at 300 testosterone and you feel all these benefits from being at 800 and you're a 50-year-old man, the benefit of being at 800 won't come any other way than being on exogenous testosterone. So you're saying, you're so, saying similar to what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, so you can you can always choose to come off and you'll go back to that 300 or where you would have naturally Eventually, declined. Yeah. Um, right. It's probably a better way to do it than cold turkey, but as far as I see it, the there is no significant risks that I'm aware of from being on it for a long period of time. Can you come off it? Yes. Will you get the benefit once you come off it? No. And I tell my women too, like, which is why I tell people in my practice, I would rather sit and talk to you for an hour or maybe have two conversations about starting this because if you're a good candidate and the treatment works as it should, meaning you get great benefit from it and you have all these positives, you are then unlikely to decide to voluntarily come off of this treatment that is providing you so many benefits. And why would you? So let's make sure that you're okay with the time, effort, money. You're okay with the pros. You're okay with the cons. Let's elucidate all those things before you decide to come on it. Um, and, and maybe just the idea, I, I see this a lot in medicine with my patients, just the idea of being on a medication. They're like, I just don't know if I want to be on something forever. That's right. Yeah. And so a lot of these questions, I just, I like to say, well, why? Tell me why, why that is, you know, they're like, well, this, that, and the other. I'm like, well, it says here you're on blood pressure med. Is that something you were also striving to come off and maybe we can come, you know, like, so <laughs> change, you know, change one for the other. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, if they're on five medications that are treating the hormone symptoms in a roundabout, maybe you're on a, you know, a Zoloft and a blood pressure med and you're on this and then you're on that. Maybe, maybe the hormone replacement will take the place of those. Um, so, you know, I think, do you have to be on it? That the essence of that question is no, but the the nuance of it is we'd go into a, a discussion about the pros and cons of being on it. There is no aging off hormone replacement, is what I tell my patients. Right. It doesn't get any better. The natural history of the disease is it's going to, or the Correct. process is it's going to get worse. And I tell people, you know, I guess I would say this: um, I I don't particularly want to have pellets put in my put them behind. I mean, you know, like, it's not like, Oh gosh, I can't wait for the rest of my life to every three months, you know, <laughs> but, but what I fear or want to avoid more or, or that it, what outweighs that is that I don't want to suffer the decline of low T. 
and right. and and the and and I want to garner all the benefits of optimized tea as I age, and that that it tends to be so the benefit outweighs whatever negativity I can see in in the right. And it's an individual decision, but I remember oh, specifically absolutely individual. being at that that crux, that that crossroads, and it was the only I was not on any medications at all, and it was sort of this like feeling like God, I'm gonna be on this forever. Uh, like what am I? I've now succumbed to some sort of whatever. But don't you think that's? Don't you think that's? But some of that is. And you know, I've learned this from you: the stoicism or the stoic philosophy of life, and it, it, it kind of ties into this or dovetails nicely. It's some of that is kind of coming to grips with aging, and being mm-hmm. and, and and becoming different than you were before, and not you know, you, especially for men who don't have to grow up having periods and worrying about pregnancies and things. I mean, so unless you genetically have some, you know, you've got some <clears throat> bad health problem that was. Uh, you know, no, through no fault of your own was genetic and you had to face it at an early age for the average person. These are d- diseases of chronicity and of aging or of, right. or of epigenetics in our society or, you know, a way we live, but they, they show up many years later. So you don't have to face it. And then all of a sudden you're having, and I get that. You're like, do I have to go on this for, I have to be on this forever? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, it depends, right? You just, you have, you're going to have to deal with aging and come to some you, whether you want to or not, right? You have to, it's it, you, either, even not deciding is a decision. So yeah. um, it, it's kind of, it ties into that. It's tough, All right, though. last tough. question. It is tough. Last question here. And this one specifically was, I had written this before my patient asked me this week, but she's almost verbatim. And this was relative to females. So if there are so many health benefits and they are so good, how come all women aren't on HRT? When you find the answer to that, can you come let me know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was such a broad <laughs> question. And I actually, I pointed this female to go to these two Instagram pages. I said, you know, like there's some specific women and some female doctors who are sort of addressing these kind of questions, as well as a cohort of potentially your peers who are asking these same questions. And you should take some time to read through I, it and see yeah. how they think. And I would tell her I have that same question. And, and, and you can really go down a rabbit hole, right? So if you, you know... Well, what do you <laughs> right? Do we want to go down the rabbit hole? Of conspiracy theories? Do we want to, you know, how well, much do we want to do? And, well, also uh, a male, you know, a patriarchal society that, uh, you know, um, and women's access to care. Why didn't if 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 everybody has a God given right to vote, then why why were women, you know, why do we why do we have to have a movement to get women their suffrage rights? And why? I mean, you know, it. it, it oh my gosh, there's a, a so disinformation, misinformation, lack of information. Um, just like there's inequities in uh, socioeconomic, you know, uh, realms uh, of access to healthcare. It, it is, it's, it's one, it's going to be, that's a whole other podcast, right? You know, that's a, t- um, tell them, tell them we can do a whole podcast on that. Um, but it, it has to do with all that. It, it, it's, you know, so, disinformation misinformation or let's talk about disinformation the world health initiative study the million women study okay so that's one lack of information i wasn't even taught about i didn't even golly you know what it's funny i was never taught that that i can recall and i'd be interested to hear what you say when you did anatomy and physiology and all through your learning i don't recall being taught i definitely learned the estrogen progesterone curve and the menstrual cycle i never knew because i was expressly taught that testosterone was even a female hormone. No, 
So 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 you have never. dogmatic right. So why why was I never taught that? Yeah, right. So when you start to get the answer to that question, you may you know you start to get answers to this question. So these are deep deep questions. Then there's you know, <clears throat> yeah. I mean like you know. Yeah, I uh, saw one of the stats that I can't remember which one of these doctors, these female doctors, which are both OBGYNs, put up and and how many hours of training they had, and then their postmenopausal training was eight hours. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it was like it's it's like from the start of menses through birth, and that was the majority of their their gynecological training. And then the postmenopausal woman, I yeah, it just and I don't know that it's always a malicious thing. It's just you know, I mean, you could say something like birth was a really historically dangerous activity. So a lot of medicine was thrust towards that, the, the making that safer and maybe right. adding there was ways prior, to was improve that. Right. Yeah. And women, and then and, and, it never stopped. Right. And it never stopped. No one bothered to like, Oh, we conquered this women's mortality rate, which was high for pregnancy back in the day. High. I mean, it was a dangerous, not only was it inconvenient and a big deal to get pregnant, I mean, then you had to face childbirth and you were like, okay, am I going to 50, 50, let's flip the coin. Am I going to survive this? Like, holy cow, man. I mean, it's, I mean, it's brutal when you start looking at history like that, but then you, then women, women and men weren't living to the age where it would even be brought up for generations. Then we kind of right. conquered infectious disease, not conquered and complete, but you know, to the point where we could live longer. Now we are. So it's the evolution of medicine has much lagged the need for solutions to these medical problems. Paradigm shifts are tough in large institutions. For, right. For dogmatic reasons, uh, uh, for historical reasons, for societal reasons. Um, golly. Yeah. All of that gender bias. I mean, I don't necessarily think that that question is isolated to hormone replacement. I say that a lot right. in my life. <laughs> like if it's so That's good, right. why, you know, like why aren't all people doing this? It's like exercise exercise. If you could bottle it and put it in a pill, you'd be a billionaire. Like why aren't all people doing this? Right. It's not always a simple, easy answer. And, but yeah. All right, doc, anything, anything else? else? Anything else? common questions you get <laughs> we're not brothers no, huh? those were those were good because I, people I, we face this all the time in clinics and i and i and i you know <laughs> i want to think that we're bringing value to folks i hope we are we get some feedback actually that we are and i mean just in any podcast could do that i'm not saying but having these discussions and parsing these out i think are helpful for people because it's not obvious these are difficult questions and um <clears throat> people get a lot of information thrust at them in from all sources now, um, you know, bro science, uh, the girls science, uh, you know, what, whatever that is. What's the and female that, version of the bro whatever, science? Yeah. It would be like the, <laughs> be careful. the wine club, the book club. Oh, the, yeah. oh no. You, the book club science. you stepped in it. Oh, man. <laughs> no matter what you say, you're going to get hit from some side. It's going to be something with books. Cause my wife does all the, has all these book clubs that does she really? either offered or offered to join or as a big thing or, you know, it's wine o'clock. Like everything's about, let's go with the girls and have our wine, you know, like, um, guys do the same thing, have some beers, whatever. But, uh, yeah. So I don't know what the, it's something like that somewhere in there. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I think it's useful to go through these things because, um, and, 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 and honestly, it's not, I would love for them to be part of the more popular societal discourse, um, because I think there's a lot of people out there needlessly suffering and a lot of people are even scared to come in and talk to, to docs about it, even in yeah, hormone clinics. Um, I agree. 
And I think I, I specifically started following these female doctors because I, I feel or felt more comfortable in the, the, the male sphere of hormone replacement in terms of understanding what are the typical patient-specific questions and roadblocks that they would be facing. And maybe I had less of a knowledge of that from a female perspective. And so this was did, yeah. this is an attempt to, to, to sort of stay up to date and like try to understand and see what the common questions are, you know, as a male and as a male who's taking hormone replacement. And I, I felt like a lot of the questions that were asked by my patients were questions I had specifically myself. And so it was much easier, much, uh, I was better poised to answer those. Whereas the female Absolutely. side of things, I wasn't necessarily, although I do work with all women, I have all daughters. <laughs> um, my- <laughs> Ironically, I know. Coincidentally, yeah. rather. Yeah. I had my head GM at the gym. You know, I was lamenting that I was in a team meeting with my gym and it's all females. It's my wife, my daughter, my GM's a female, my personal trainer's Wait, a female. Wait, hold on. But you've got the, the male, the doesn't the male chiropractor, the guy who did the podcast? One, but he wasn't in the, he wasn't at that meeting because, okay. yeah, because this was the gym specific uh, okay. side. And she's like, it's not our fault. You're the one doing all the hiring. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, touche. Like, what does that say about me? Yeah, I know. You're like, wait a second. Yeah. Have I, oh my gosh. Like living, living with three women. <laughs> no, four women. Uh, all these years. Does it, you know, has that, a, now I'm, yeah, I don't know. Um, it takes a village, man. I like, I like to have both sides of, um, I, I've, it's funny over the course of my lifetime working with female surgeons, there's some, there's some badass chicks, man. And they, and they make, it's funny. They really do see things a little different. And I think the best teams, in my case, surgical teams, but then I've seen it in business and in life in general. And that's why I hate this. Anyway, I don't want to get on. The <laughs> You're going to go on the but, soapbox. So know, how many, right? how many, how, is it, is it my perception of the female? And I have no idea, but my perception of the female surgical uh, percentages, is pretty low compared to males. Is that true? Oh, no. Oh really? Oh uh, no, it's getting it's getting pretty high. I remember when I um Well, you're an I old surgeon, so was it true when you were in school? When I was in residency as I, the, the so the my class was all guys. My my graduating chief class or whatever. You know, five five guys. But by the time you got down to the second third years and interns, it was half and half. And I think there was yeah. one or two there might have been one or two that were it was like three and two, three women. Female dominant. Yeah. yeah. College is female dominant now. Chiropractic school was about 50-50 when I was there. Med school, I think. Oh, here was, we go. Let's actually yeah. get some stats Look at that, 50-50. I know med school is like, I think um, there's more women than men in med school now, but looks like, yeah, so look at this. Women are basically catching up, and it's about half and half for women. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen good male surgeons, not so good male surgeons. I've seen not as in great, uh, you know, are good female surgeons, and I've seen not so great. Um, and I've yeah, not found people. that it, it's people. It's people. Now I will say, in general, women approach things a little differently, but it's but but that has value, and men approach things a little bit, and that has value. And so we don't all need to be homogeneous. Is my no? Opinion. There are gender so specific message. differences for sure. I don't but care. The, there is. They aren't. There absolutely. Is. There are, but they aren't necessarily categorized as good or bad they just I will are. never criticize somebody if they're an adult and they want to and they want to pursue a different gender or sex than they were born with that's your choice as a human being and you're an adult and a consent you know you whatever that's fine but there are differences and um and and there's value in those differences but yeah you know, i would never begr- if somebody wanted to <laughs> do whatever knock yourself out that's your choice you yeah know? but um 
Yeah, it's funny having all girls, man. When I when I see boys, little boys, I'm just like, what is that animal? I think it's like a beast. It's dude. It, I lost oh, all touch, man. Dude, you my oh my boys are are they're, they're bonkers, dude. They are absolutely, especially my jet aptly named. Um, he oh my gosh, dude. It it's is, funny. One of Stacy's good friends is uh, it lives in New York City, uh, very much a, a, a New York City. Just that's her, that's her, right? New oh, York do City. I know who you're? Yes, yes, yes. So her son though had this like she fascination. Had I didn't even know she had children. Yeah, she has a little boy. Okay. Uh, when he was young, had a fascination with John Deere tractors. <laughs> I don't think he'd ever even seen one. Like he's just like that North Florida blood was in him. I was gonna say just, she's from Tallahassee, like right? Yeah, that, I was yeah. like, yeah, I was like, it was deep, so man. funny to see this little boy loving John Deere, like just. Loved up, and I'm like, you're in New York, New York City. Like, grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. Just love tractors. It's like you're a boy, man. You can't yeah, through and through, through and through, man. No, it's not that women can't, but generally speaking, I don't no, see. I don't. And, see I don't it's funny because I don't necessarily think that saying that means that women can't. Like, we always have to take that opposite. Like, I know. I'm, I'm not saying women can't. Like, I didn't say women couldn't. I just said that. That I know. you know. But, but, but three in today's women. society, yeah, it feels like you have to defend yourself all the time. And I'm like, yeah, it's so I'm crazy. done I'm defending like, myself. Yeah, <laughs> I've raised true. three women and not a single one of them ever loved tractors. And then when I saw this boy, <laughs> I was like, never had an inkling of a tractor in his life living in New York City. and just like was just genetically drawn to tractors. I was like, yeah, that's so funny. It's like, get it, yeah, boy. Man. That's funny. Yeah. Well, we should do a. We should look in. The, maybe we should do a one for guys. Um, yeah, you follow a, another a social guy. I wonder what his. Uh, why don't you look up oh his God, questions? Geez, Louise, some, yeah, I like guy. him. I like him. Oh, he's funny, man. He's a. Yeah, he's a. He funny good. Dude. I think he's a. I think he's a Florida resident. Oh, interesting. Um, but I think he does good topics, and I think he has good information. I think he's a knowledgeable guy. Um, he's not a polished social media. No, and he's, been, he's got a lot of empirical evidence. He's been doing it a long time. I think yeah. he has some good information. I do disagree with him on some things, um, but for the most part, I agree with him. And, and I do respect him because he is very um, – he, he works at it a lot. He cares about it a lot. He cares for – he seems to care for his patients mm -hmm. a lot. I agree. I, I, and, I do, and I do like that, and, um, and he's he seems to be moving the whole thing. I don't – you know, he, he, he seems to – have it be having an impact and moving things forward and and that's a good thing so um you know and it deals with the patient base that i necessarily don't deal with but i think I needs information um, and needs time. good clinical data and needs someone that they that feels they aren't understood the bodybuilding the young male the yeah. power lifter that category we're talking needs. about the anabolic doc guy right or whatever and i think is. he does yeah. great I, yeah i think he does good information i think he's uh, you know and and i always tell people too like you may disagree and the answer may be a for you and the answer may be b from you but if the underlying basis of where we're headed is the best result for the patient we're a direction at least, on the same yeah way at least at least we have the same i i think the information is directly influenced by the the person who's delivering the information and if i trust you as a you have my best interest and i think he honestly does i think you know I well think yeah he's very what i see I, yeah i agree and he, he seems to um <clears throat> always be cautioning his patients and, mm -hmm. um and so you can't deny that at least from what i see that yeah, at least the persona that i've uh, the information that i've digested from the him evidence that's out there based on what you can consume on ig for instance he does. He does. Yeah, judged by that, he cares about his patients. You know? And I, he's made me go look up some things and yeah, 
like, huh, I didn't know that. I'm not sure if I really, and I had to go look it up and decide for myself. So, all right. So let's do one on males. All right, man. All right, brother. Until next time. Have a good one. You too. Bye.